Hello, crime family. Welcome back. This is episode 64, True Crime B&B. I'm Bailey. I'm Beth. And we're in normal roles today. I'm going to tell you about a woman named Judy Smith. She was born Judith Lois Eldridge in December of 1946 in Massachusetts, but she went by Judy. She ended up going to college for nursing, which surprised no one based on her kind and nurturing demeanor. Once she graduated, somewhere around 1968, she began working as a home health care nurse. Okay. Over the next two decades, Judy married and divorced twice. By 1986, she was an empty nester with two adult children and was still divorced. That year, she took on a job caring for a man who had recently undergone throat surgery, and she was just staying with him for a couple months while he recuperated. And during that temporary gig, she met the man's son, who was a lawyer named Jeffrey Smith, who was also recently divorced. The two hit it off and started seeing each other pretty casually. They didn't really want to make it serious very fast. They weren't in a rush to get married again, essentially. But after seven years of them being together, they finally said, we're not going to get married, but we should probably move in at some point together. (laughs) Seven years of dating, then they moved in together. In 1996, with three years of Harmonious cohabitating together, they decided it was a pretty safe bet to go ahead and just get married because they're like, we've been together 10 years. I think we like each other at this point. (laughs) And so they did. At this time in 1996, Jeffrey was the counsel of a pharmaceutical company who invited him to a three-day middle-of-the-week conference in Philadelphia. That was going to be taking place April 9th through the 11th, 1997. Wait, where did they live before this? They're in Boston. (laughs) They're in the Boston area, but this conference is Philadelphia. So they're from Massachusetts. Yes. Okay. In the 10 years of being together, Judy and Jeffrey had never gotten to travel together because she was working constantly, and anytime she would take a trip, it was just a weekend trip, and he couldn't go. So they decided, we're going to make a whole weekend of it. We're going to go to Philadelphia. She can sightsee while I'm at the conference, and then we'll get together and have dinner or whatever. They went ahead, bought the plane tickets, and were set to go. April 9th, they arrived to the Boston airport. However, Judy quickly realized that she had forgotten her driver's license at home. So she was denied access to board the plane. And so she told Jeffrey, you know what, go ahead, I'll go home, get my license, come back and get a later flight and still meet you there. They went ahead with that. Jeffrey flew out. And then the next flight out of Boston to Philadelphia that evening was at 7.30 p.m. And Judy successfully boarded that. Okay. And this just shows how sweet she is. She got there finally, probably about like 8, 39 o'clock at night. And she stopped on the way to the hotel and bought him a bouquet of flowers to say, sorry, I forgot my ID and made us miss a whole day together. That's sweet. Yeah. April 10th, the next morning, the two wished each other well before Jeffrey went ahead and attended the conference and Judy decided to explore the historic landmarks of Philadelphia. There are many. Yes, there are. And to do that, she had been planning... I guess there's a tour bus company that takes you to like the Liberty Bell and all these different places that you can see. And it's called the Flash Bus, P-H. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And that's what she was planning to do. And that bus, the tour ended around three o'clock in the afternoon. And then that evening, about six o'clock, there's supposed to be a cocktail party for all of the coworkers. And so she said, I'll be back by three o'clock and I'll meet you in the hotel room after you're done so we can get ready and go. After Jeffrey returned to the room and started getting ready, Judy still hadn't come up and he didn't know where she was because she was supposed to be back two hours ago. And so he kind of assumed that maybe she had been running ahead of schedule and just was going to meet him downstairs at the party. 
He went ahead at 6 o'clock, went to the party, and she was not at the party either. Uh-oh. Throughout the evening, he would keep going back up to the room and then back down to the party, just trying to cross her path somewhere in the stairwell or something. In his last trip to the room, he surveyed all the belongings. He said, well, she left her suitcase. Everything is still here except for the things that she would normally leave the house with, like her wedding ring, her wallet, and she didn't have a purse. She had distinctly a red backpack that she would wear everywhere. So at that point, he decided to go ahead and hire a taxi to go along the route of that tour bus and see if maybe she had stopped somewhere, it broke down or something, and he didn't see her anywhere on that route. Was it too late for him to call the tour bus company and ask them, hey, do you have any update on what may have happened to my wife? Probably, because I think party started at 6 o'clock p.m., so yeah, probably by this point it's at least 8. So he can't you know. probably call them until morning. Probably not. Finally, at midnight, Jeffrey called the police to file a missing persons report, but they gave him the 24-hour excuse and said, nope, can't do it. She can just leave if she wants to. And he's like, why would she do that? This isn't her town. Yeah, if she was going to leave, she would leave from home where she's got all her stuff. Mm Mm-hmm. Jeffrey got frustrated with that response. And luckily, that evening at this conference, the mayor of Philadelphia was there for this conference. And Jeffrey had gotten his name, number, and all that information. So Jeffrey went to the mayor's room, I guess, and just was like, you need to tell them to look for my wife. And so the mayor called the police and overrode them, basically said, no, immediately start looking for this woman. Good. And they did. Everyone needs to know the mayor. (laughs) They weren't happy about it, though. The police did not take it seriously for a long, long time. Well, that's too bad that they didn't like it. I mean, imagine being in a strange city and something happens to you and nobody wants to look for you. Well, just imagine being her. And if you're you're somewhere and you're waiting for someone to come and find you, Mm -hmm. but nobody's even looking for you and your husband has no resources to look for you. He doesn't even have any friends there that can help him look for you. Yeah. So it's just... Uh, lazy. I, it's lazy it's on the lazy. police part. And not only was Jeffrey adamant that she wouldn't do this, but her two children, the adult children, immediately flew out to Philadelphia to come and help look. And even they were like, everything was good in her life. She wouldn't. Why would my mom do this? And if she wanted to leave Jeffrey, she wouldn't disappear from us. The That's kids. right. The next day, on 11th of April, the police were able to get in touch with the flash bus driver who had taken her. So she did successfully get on the bus, and then he dropped her off at 3 o'clock in the afternoon in front of the hotel. Okay. However, a couple days later, they started posting her missing poster everywhere around New England, 22 miles away in New Jersey at a place called Deptford Mall. A cashier called in a tip after checking out a woman who looked a lot like Judy. The police took it seriously. They went and interviewed this cashier, and most of the interaction completely matched up with the known facts about Judy that had not been released to the public. So she knew things that she shouldn't know if she didn't actually meet Judy. Including, Jeffrey and Judy had been planning to drive to New Jersey after their trip in Philadelphia just to stay with the friends for the rest of the weekend and then go home to Boston. And nobody knew that except for Jeffrey and Judy. The fact that this mall was in New Jersey, it kind of was like, I mean, it was only 22 miles away, so if she wanted to go for the rest of the afternoon, it wouldn't be that weird, I guess. Right, it's not that far. Yeah, so maybe that happened. We don't know. Also, the woman at the mall was wearing a red backpack, and the woman had told the cashier that she was buying clothes for her daughter and then joked that she probably wouldn't like the clothes, though, because she never liked anything she chose. Oh, that's funny. And Judy's daughter did confirm to the police, that's a very common joke that we make together, is that, stop buying me stuff, you know I'm not going to like it. You know it. (laughs) It all added up. 
However, towards the end of the interaction, the cashier said that Judy seemed to become confused. And then after she walked away from the cash register, Judy walked up to a little girl and started calling her her daughter's name and trying to get her to leave with her. Oh, my God. So she had some sort of brain issue. Amnesia or like, we don't know. But then she kind of snapped out of it and then just shook her head and then walked out of the mall. And nobody had seen her after that point. So she's having some sort of medical emergency? Mm -hmm. That's what it seems so far. Okay. Yeah, that's weird. That's very bizarre. After that, the police kind of were like, our hands are tied. We put out all the missing posters. We can't tell you anything else. We don't have any more witnesses. We're kind of at a standstill. There's nothing else we can do at this point unless you come up with more clues of maybe she had a boyfriend or maybe there was like something else going on in her life that you could tell us. He refused to give up, but after he had to go back home to Boston, he ended up hiring private investigators and taking time off from his practice in order to focus on finding his wife, distributing the missing persons posters all up and down the East Coast to anybody that would take them. Specifically, he went and dropped them off at hospitals and asked them to fax all the other hospitals in the area with the picture, because if she had disappeared on purpose, she is a nurse. She's probably going to find a job at one of these places. Mm So, Okay, that makes sense. Five months later, September 7th, 1997, in North Carolina, 600 miles away from where she had disappeared, hunters called the police to report skeletal remains found in Mount Pisgah National Forest. Oh, boy. 600 miles away from Philadelphia. And completely the opposite direction from Boston. Yeah. These skeletal remains were found wrapped in a blue blanket, obviously homicide, based on the puncture marks in the clothing items, and it also had, like, scratches on the skeleton, so they could tell this was a stabbing death. They were wearing hiking clothes, including hiking boots, and had a black and blue backpack with them, and also a pair of really expensive designer sunglasses. And since this was 600 miles away, they didn't even really know about Judy at all, this police force that was investigating Right, there would be no means to connect her with this Mm -hmm. person. Especially 1997. Someone nearby, the Discovery, a doctor working in a hospital in Asheville, North Carolina, saw that these skeletal remains were found and had just remembered seeing that poster that was faxed to him. So he faxed the missing poster to the police in North Carolina, and they decided to contact Jeffrey back in Boston and ask if he had her dental records. And so he sent that over, and that's how they confirmed it was Judy. Oh, wow. How long had she been deceased at this point? They couldn't really tell, but it was a long time. So they think pretty immediately after she was last seen, she was murdered. Somebody snatched her and took her south. But they do think she was still alive when they got to that national forest because it was so far into the forest that anybody carrying her that distance is just not rational to think that they did. Right. So either she took a ride with someone mm-hmm. or somebody grabbed her. Or she went on a hike with somebody that she trusted and they did that. I don't know. It's important to note, she didn't have anybody in North Carolina. There's no family, there's no friends, nobody that she communicated with ever in North Carolina. It didn't make sense. Yeah. None of it did. This is weird and upsetting. The clothing that she was wearing, nobody in her family or Jeffrey recognized any of it, with all the hiking gear that she had, and the backpack wasn't her distinct backpack. That's a weird thing. Right. An investigator seemed to think that whoever took her out here... That must have been their backpack. All those flyers are all up and down the East Coast with a description of what she's wearing, and Mm -hmm. they don't want her outfit being recognized. 
That's a good point. So maybe they could have forced her to change mm-hmm. if once they ran across her, however. Yeah. And all of the valuables were still on her person. All of the money she had in her wallet, it was found at the scene. So it wasn't robbery, whoever did this. It has been bounced around that the National Forest serial killer, that's his moniker, Gary Michael Hilton, Mm -hmm. apparently in that exact forest about a year prior, one of his victims had been found disposed of there. One of his confirmed victims were found in this area where Judy was found. But he was a robber too. So that doesn't make sense. It wasn't the MO, so they don't think he did it. That still, even if it was a serial killer that just stumbled upon her, why the fuck was she in North Carolina, though? That doesn't answer any of And if you're a serial killer who is stumbling upon a woman in North Carolina where she really doesn't have any reason to be, mm-hmm. why are you going to make her change her clothes? Yeah. If you're a serial killer, you're not going to drag her around up and down the East Coast for days at a time. Unfortunately, Jeffrey passed away in 2005. The most recent update I could find is that Judy's case has been reopened and since then detectives are currently trying to see what answers modern forensic testing can provide in her death. But after 25 years, we don't know that they've preserved everything properly until we have updates. We won't know. So I hope in the near future I will hopefully have some answers about what happened to Judy. But right now it's just so many question marks. Poor Judy. I mean, it really does sound like she had some sort of a medical emergency and Mm -hmm. somehow got off track, ended up someplace she didn't intend to go, and then someone saw that and took advantage of her and ended up grabbing her, snatching her, and taking her to Mount Pisgah. Strange. I I, I can't even think of a story that would make sense to me, how she ended up there, too. Well, not by herself, no. Mm-hmm. And how many cases do we have where somebody just got took a ride from a trucker and thought, oh, this guy's actually working, so he, I'm safe with him. Mm-hmm. He's working. Somebody knows where he is. But they don't always. And if she wasn't sure where she was, who she was, what was going on, how did I get where I am, mm-hmm. and somebody's like, hey, do you need help? She's like, yeah, I need help. And they put her in their truck or their car, and somehow they end up in North Carolina Somebody sees the flyer. They're like, oh my God, they're looking for this woman. That's exactly what they're looking for. The red backpack. We got to get rid of this. Yeah. Give me those clothes. You can put these on. I mean, obviously, everything I just said is completely fabricated, but... Yeah, this whole case is hypothetical. Yeah, I'm just saying that's something that I could see actually being a way that you would end up getting her in your car Mm -hmm. and getting her into the forest, so... Well, that's terrible. That's a really sad story because she sounds like she was such a nice person. And she had a happy life. She had a husband and kids who loved her. Okay, so you are going to cheer us up? No. (laughs) (laughs) This story is a little bit out of the ordinary for us because we normally don't cover minors. But Mm -hmm. this is the story of the experiences and crimes against a young woman named Angelique. And I found one story that included her last name, but the vast majority didn't. So I think it's clear she prefers it not be used. So Mm -hmm. I'm not using her last name. Okay. So I will title this Angelique X. All right. Angelique is an Australian woman who comes from a mid-sized town called Ballarat, which is 110 kilometers northwest of Melbourne, Victoria. She's quiet and shy. She's nice to everybody. She's just a sweet girl. And back before this time period of what happened to her, she just assumed that people were what they presented themselves to be. She was genuine, and she assumed you're genuine too. Mm -hmm. Today, she's 25. 
but she had grown up in the foster system. She didn't remember any contact with her birth family. Some stories said that she couldn't read or write, but based on the interviews that I saw with her, it sounds to me more like she had limited reading comprehension and limited writing skills because she's a person with some sort of mild intellectual disability. Okay. In the interviews that I saw with her, as a layperson, it didn't seem to me very obvious that she had those challenges, but I think that a person spending time with her would probably see more indicative patterns over a period of time. Mm-hmm. But the reason that even matters at all in this story is not about her intellectual abilities. It's about the fact that a person who experiences that probably tends to be a little bit more naive than another person of the same age. So the age of release from foster care in Australia is 18 years old. Mm-hmm. But Angelique took off at 16 from the home that she had been placed in at the age of 10. So she'd been there for six years. I don't think they had any terrible blow-up or anything. She just took off. That's a long stay for a foster family, too, I feel like. Yeah. After leaving there, she bounced around for several months in and out of town. When she returned to Ballarat, she didn't go back to the foster home that she had left, and she had no permanent place to stay. So she crashed here and there with her friends, and she was just considered a runaway, so nobody was really looking for her. Yeah. In 2014, after she had returned to Ballarat, she was at a party, and from across the room she caught the eye of a boy who was watching her. He came over and started talking to her. He seemed confident. He was friendly. He seemed really nice. She was still 16, and his name was Thomas Jennings, and he was 18. It's not too wildly different. Not too wildly different. They had a few things in common, and they both liked going for walks. They liked taking drives in the car. They were just enjoying talking to each other at this party. He asked her how he could reach her. Could he have her Facebook contact information? She happily gave it to him. What could go wrong with that? You know, it's not that big a deal. They continued talking for the rest of this evening at this party. The next morning, she woke up, and he had sent her a Facebook message. They chatted with each other all through the day. I mean, I'm sure you remember what that's like. When you meet somebody new, you really think that there's something cool about them, and you're Mm -hmm. excited to be talking to them, and you just want to sit there and chit-chat with them all day long. Well, apparently, Mm -hmm. Thomas had also been asking other people about her because she got another message later on that day saying, Hey, I heard you have nowhere to live. You can come and live with me if you like. Well, her first thought was, I hardly know this guy. Yeah, that's creepy. I would... But then again, she had been sleeping in spare rooms and on couches for months, and she didn't see how this would be all that different from house sharing with new roommates or with strangers like she had been. The next shoe dropped, and he added that if she did come to stay with him, that he expected that she was going to date him too. In fact, it was a condition of the arrangement. But Angelique had already been hoping that they were going to start dating. She had a crush on him. She enjoyed talking to him. So she took this bold step by Thomas to mean he was really into her, and so she decided that she would give it a chance. I know, my red flags went up too, but... Well, I'm not going to lie, though. Most, I think, 16-year-olds, the boy you like is like, hey, you can move in with me because here you need a place to stay, but you got to be my girlfriend. We're going to be like, oh my God, of course. You know, (laughs) that's a 16-year-old... Typical reaction, I That's feel true. Like. I mean, some of it's not naivete from her intellectual disability as mm-hmm. much as it is just teenager naivete. Not seeing the realisticness of the situation. You're just hopeful and excited. And yeah. I get it. So Angelique gathered up her few belongings and headed over to Thomas's place that very same evening. 
When she got there, she felt very welcome. She was kind of excited, and they were having fun. She played with his dog, whom he had ominously named Bitch. Thomas and Angelique spent a lot of time together in those first few days, and as she shyly described it, quote, we became boyfriend and girlfriend. Mm. And I think I know what that means, but she didn't explicitly say it, so I'm just guessing. But if I'm right, that it means they became physically intimate, it helps explain her level of attachment to him in a really short period of time. Yep. After several really good, fun days together, Thomas told her that if she was planning to stay there, that she needed to be on the lease. Well, Angelique didn't know much about leases, but it made some sense that a homeowner might want to know who was living on their property, so she didn't give it a lot of thought and signed where he told her to sign. After he took the paper back, she said his entire demeanor towards her instantly changed. Sweet Thomas. Fun Thomas. That Thomas was gone, and this new Thomas held this paper up in front of her face and told her she hadn't signed a lease, but a master and submissive contract. He gloated to her that he was now the master and she was now the slave and he had the contract to prove it. Angelique was confused. She was upset. She felt sick all of a sudden. She was suddenly very scared and asked herself, what the hell had she done? She tried to bolt from the room, but he reached out and grabbed her by the neck and he pinned her up against the wall. He shouted at her, go to bed now. And she was so terrified and panicky that she couldn't think and she just did what she was told. This night began a nightmare that just got worse as time went by. At the beginning, he demanded that she cook and clean. Shortly after this, he started to beat her. He would berate her. He would humiliate her. He took her clothing and would rarely let her put any clothing on. He had smashed her phone so she couldn't call for help. She would beg him to just let her go, and he laughed and punched her in the face. He told her that if she tried to leave, he would kill her. And based on the level of violence she had already started to experience, Angelique believed him that he would kill her. Mm -hmm. After a few weeks of this abuse, he started to increase the level of humiliation he inflicted on her by making her wear a diaper and locking her in the dog crate. It was so small that she couldn't move and her face was pressed up against the bars. This was the first of many times. Most days she was in the cage for at least a few hours, but sometimes he left her in there overnight. If she cried, he extended the confinement period in the cage. Even when she was not locked up in this cage, his abuse was nightmarish. He forced her to cook for him, but he would hit her if she tried to eat anything or even drink water. She said that if he went outside for a few minutes, she would run to the kitchen and chug down cups of water. If she did get to eat anything, it was only things he wouldn't want. Scraps, leftovers, or even dog food. She had become so malnourished that she could see all of her bones through her skin. Because Angelique was in such a vulnerable and hopeless place, she believed him when he told her that she deserved this treatment. She believed him that since she had signed the contract, he had the right to treat her this way. The only day that she ever looked forward to was on her birthday, when he would say, I'm giving you a break, and would abstain from hurting or humiliating her just for that one day. Oh, what a sweetheart. Yeah, what a guy. Ugh. At one point, Jennings had been confronted by police about an illegal weapon, some kind of pellet gun that he wasn't supposed to have in his possession, and he blamed Angelique for it being in the house. But no one was arrested, and the charges kind of hung out there, and nothing really came of that right away. Mm -hmm. And I cannot find definitive confirmation that she lived in the same house, but Jennings's mother was there at least part of the time that this was happening to Angelique. Just based on appearance alone, you would think that the police would be able to see something's not right. I don't know, just... 
I don't know. I don't know what that first encounter was like. Mm. I don't know if they came in the house or if they just came there and he went outside. I don't know. Said, oh, my girlfriend. Yeah, that's her gun. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So having his mother in the house, I think all of this is horrifying, but it just shocks me mm-hmm. that his mother would allow this in her house. Angelique remembered a terrifying moment when Jennings was threatening her. He had told his mom to go out and put a layer of plastic in the boot or the car trunk so that he could take her out into the bush and bury her alive. So if his mother let this go as acceptable treatment of another human, I guess that explains some of what's wrong with him. Oh, he turned out that way, yeah. One other way that Jennings tortured Angelique was by shocking her tongue with a car battery. Ugh. Another way was to order his dog to attack her and bite her. For three years, this went on. And every year around Christmas time, Thomas would invite all of his friends over and show off for them that he had this woman who couldn't leave and to whom he could do anything that he wanted. He would abuse Angelique in front of his friends, all of whom just turned a blind eye. He would choke her and they said nothing. They just let it go on and went about their business as if she wasn't even there or as if she wasn't even a person. How did this many people like that find each I don't under... I have no idea. It it shocks me when I hear about one person like this. Mm -hmm. But to hear a whole group of friends who thought this was okay behavior, I don't get it. We'll never get it. Yeah. Normal people can't get it. And not saying anything is just as bad as doing it yourself. I'm sorry. Hot take. Yeah. No, I agree with you. Over the Christmas of 2017, when the group of friends came over, there was a new guy in their midst. His name was Chris Bourne, and he was there with people he knew, but he wasn't a friend of Thomas Jennings. It was the first time Chris had met Jennings, and when Jennings pulled his regular performance of choking Angelique, Chris physically grabbed Jennings and threw him off of her. Chris shouted at Jennings, Don't you ever do that again! Jennings then knocked down a peg in front of his buddies, took them all out to work on his car, but Chris stayed behind with Angelique. When he asked her if she was okay, which she clearly wasn't, She told him everything that had happened to her over the last three years, including that Jennings had even blamed her for that weapon incident. Chris was mortified and vowed that he was going to help Angelique get away from Jennings. Chris figured out a plan to get her safely out of the house, because if he tried to take her out, there would be a confrontation and somebody was going to get hurt. Mm -hmm. So he figured out a plan and bought Angelique a panic button that he brought back to the house a few days afterward. He snuck it into Angelique when Jennings had stepped into the kitchen for a few minutes. She hid the button away where Jennings wouldn't find it, and she did feel better knowing that if she thought he was really going to kill her, she could use that and Chris would come back right away. Within a week of the button arriving at the house, Jennings was out of control again. He choked Angelique and then he dragged her out into the garden where he tied a noose around her neck, and then he kept the pressure on until she started blacking out. He decided to let her out because he suddenly realized he had a hankering for a pie. So he untied her and demanded that she go in the house and make him a pie. Angelique instead raced into the house and pushed the panic button, hoping against hope that Chris would be able to come through because she really believed that she had almost been murdered that day. Chris showed up at the door within minutes. He brought up the illegal weapons charge against Angelique and told Chris that the police wanted to question Angelique about the weapon's origin and how she had gotten it. Knowing that Jennings wasn't fond of the police, Chris helpfully offered to take her there and bring her back after the questioning. Jennings fell for it, and after threatening Angelique with death if she said anything about him, Angelique took off with Chris in Chris's car. Once at the police station, Angelique found out that Chris had already told them what had been going on. So when she got there, they handed her a glass of Milo, which sounds to me like chocolate milk, 
And they gave her a blanket, and they told her they needed to get a statement from her, and they were going to help her. She was photographed to document all of her injuries, and then she gave a detailed statement of everything that had gone on and everything Jennings had done to her for the last three years. The weapons charge against her was dropped, and she was taken for treatment at the hospital for all of these injuries. When they left, Chris said that he would take her to his home where she would be safe. She was now 19 years old. She had lost three years of her life through a living hell. And when she entered Chris's home, she just burst into tears at the relief she felt and thanked him for saving her. He was a really good friend to Angelique and let her stay there. And he cooked for her, trying to reverse the malnutrition that she had suffered for so long. Eventually, as she started reaching out to people again, she made contact with a cousin and then she went and moved in with the cousin. Thomas Jennings was charged with 20 offenses, but some of those were dropped when he pled guilty in a plea deal. He pled guilty to false imprisonment, assault with a weapon, and willfully urged dog to bite, among other charges. But this part is going to piss you off. In December 2017, Jennings was sentenced to two years and eight months. So not even the amount of time that he had her captive. Exactly. He was not given early release, so he served the whole sentence. But while he had tortured her for three years of her life, he only had to give up 32 months of his as punishment for what he did to her. Mm. Chris Bourne said, quote, I was disgusted. She went through three years of torture, and he got a lighter sentence than what she did. And she has to live with that for the rest of her life. If he was doing this in front of me, what was going on behind closed doors? Mm-hmm. When confronted publicly after his release, Thomas had grown out a huge shaggy hairdo to hide his face and try to look different. He has no license plates on his car to make himself less identifiable. He and his family maintain that he didn't do anything wrong. When a reporter from A Current Affair said to his sister that, quote, as a woman, you can't stand here and say he's an innocent man. His sister's response was, Do you know how many people in the community aren't innocent or ones that don't even have licenses and that drive around and get away with it? What the fuck? How is that even on the same level? This family is a family of freaking monsters. I don't even understand how people like this exist. Like, they don't live in reality. It's just weird. How is driving without a license even relevant to the fact that your brother manipulated and held a woman captive for three years and tormented her. That's like comparing, oh, I shot somebody, but you can't judge me because you jaywalked. It's so fucking not the point. When Angelique was asked why she thought it was vital to tell her story, she said it's because after Jennings got out, she wanted to warn other people to avoid him. Mm -hmm. She doesn't want something like this to happen to anyone else. Not if she could help to warn them. And she added, quote, Now is my time to be able to be happy. I should be able to deserve happiness. And now Angelique is living a happy life. She has trustworthy friends. Asked where she thought she would be had Chris Bourne not set out on his mission to save her. Angelique said, I would be in a grave if he didn't come along. And the fact is, no one knew where she was. He could have killed her. People had wondered what had happened to Angelique, but they weren't actively looking for her Mm -hmm. it seemed like she had dropped off the face of the earth but since she didn't really have any routine didn't have a normal place to be they didn't know that she was actually missing but once she started to look for her old friends they were shocked and horrified at what she had been through she also reached out to her old foster family with whom she had lived from age 10 until she had taken off at age 16 she found her biological siblings and has been building relationships with them and she had never known them before. That's sweet. 
One of the friends she found again was an old family friend named Harley. He was sweet to her. He made her smile and laugh. He was gentle and tender with her, and she fell in love with him. In March of 2020, Angelique and Harley got married. She has people who love her and look out for her now. She says she still has trouble trusting men aside from Chris and Harley, but of course that's understandable. Of course. She is a survivor, and she's been so brave in telling her story and warning people about this guy. She says she is now stronger than ever. And Chris Bourne's pride for how far Angelique has come is so clear, but he's humble about his part in saving her. He did what he did because he knew he had to do the right thing and get her out of that nightmare. How many people had been to that house, including Jennings's mother and all of those friends and not one person had enough conscience or sense of right and wrong to even make a phone call to try to help her? For Chris Bourne, there wasn't any question about it. He didn't feel that he had a choice. He had to do it. And that makes Chris Bourne an amazing, good-hearted man. It just infuriates me that not only he got two years, everybody who was in that home should be charged. They were all accessories. He was literally strangling a person in front of you, and you said nothing. And I hope all of them are having nightmares every night about it, because and they, they all they didn't... He didn't only do it one time. He did this on multiple occasions mm-hmm. in front of these people. Why did he make her sign the, like, master and slate? Was it just a fear tactic he was trying to hold over her head? I think that there is a legitimate thing that's the master and subservient. Like a BDSM. But I think you have to be of legal age to sign that to for one thing. To that kind of... Yeah, I don't think that you have the power to consent to that at age 16. So I think knowing that, I mean, he had spent a lot of time talking to her over the last few days, I think he knew that she would fall for that, that she would believe that that was a legal document that she had no choice about. People are just shitty. Like, I'm sorry, people just No, you're not wrong. Shitty. How, as a person, do you see somebody who is especially vulnerable vulnerable and innocent and trusting and just go, you know what I can use you for? Yeah. What the fuck is wrong with people? I can keep you naked for three years and shock your tongue with a battery and stuff you into my dog cage and not feed you. I have no words. Did they ever mention Thomas's father? Was he abusive towards him and his mother, maybe? And that's why the mother was like... nothing available about his family life except for what assholes they are now. It had to be. There has to be some kind of abuse in that household beforehand for the mother to just be like... Maybe she was scared of her son now. I don't know. I guess that's a possibility. But. Yeah. yeah. So that's Angelique X. And I'm just so happy that she got her life back, that she found Harley. That. Yeah, you're happy about that too, I know. Yeah. Please tell me that Chris was invited to her wedding. I'm sure that Chris was invited to the wedding. I have a really Sweet. cute picture of Chris and Angelique and Harley together. Oh, I want to That I'll post that. on Instagram. Yeah. I love so. it. All right, so I think that's the end of episode 64, unless you have anything you want to add. I don't, not this week. All right. Well, it'll and be April Fool's next week, but it'll be after the, or I before this comes out. I said that in out. last episode, though. Oh, never mind. April Fool's. It's not April Fool's. <laughs> we gotcha. <laughs> Indeed. Okay. Okay, guys, thank you for listening again this week, and we will be back next week for episode 65. See ya. Bye. So she was born in Massachusetts. <laughs> First time in the U.S.? <laughs> Slovenia? Slovakia? No. She's hey. rubbing her face on the blinds. Stop it. <laughs>
We rearranged the furniture for you. <laughs> what else do you want from us? I don't know. I just don't know why anybody would not report back that they had found her if it was somebody she knew. Because if they murdered her. Well, I know. I, I also would not be like, hey, I saw her in North Carolina. <laughs> okay, you're making a valid point. Maybe my logic was not quite <laughs> right there. I'm trying so hard not to laugh. I was just such a dumb comment I made. <laughs> Sometimes I astound myself with my stupidity. Every day. <laughs> I'm crying, I'm laughing Every so day, hard. one of us says something that's like... Did you ever go to school? Like, <laughs> he was so rocky yesterday. Oh, my God. All right, I had to get that out. No, I'm it's sorry. okay. <laughs> I wasn't listening at all. You think I want to fight you? <laughs> I don't fight anymore. <laughs> oh, shit. Next time a guy asks me on a date, I'm going to use that. <laughs> I don't fight anymore. <laughs> She's looking at us very... Curiously. I get to meow once per episode, and you guys get to sit here and laugh for 25 minutes, and it's bullshit. About your own stupidity. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's important to note.